0: The Near Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. And today, I'm talking to someone about one of my pet subjects, the future of learning. Some listeners will know I'm setting up a training company right now, so this is an area close to my heart. First, the usual bit about who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, the technology journalist, event MC, and media trainer with over 30 years experience. You might have heard me or seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books, or seen me in The Guardian, New Statesman Tech, and elsewhere. I go to a lot of conferences and hear experts talking about their forecasts about the decades to come. I'd rather use my 30 years experience as a commentator to discuss what's likely to happen later this year, early next, and the action we need to take now. So I came up with the near-futurist concept. Do have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk, where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, please check the showreel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk, that's nearfuturist as one word, or get in touch with my agent, whose details are of course also on the site. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. And if you're new to the show, you're very welcome. That's enough self promotional yet for one episode. My guest today is head of Fuse Universal, a company whose philosophy is how organizations approach learning and development for a world where the life of a skill is constantly shortening. He's quoted figures in the past that suggest that 90% of what's learned in the traditional way is forgotten very quickly. So let's ask whether that's a problem. And if so, what's the solution? His name is Steve Dineen. Steve, welcome. Welcome. Okay. Uh, yes, I was just saying welcome. I'm actually in your office, <laughs> so it's a very strange beginning. So yes, I, I, I hereby welcome myself to your office. <laughs> but uh, look, cards on the table. I'm old enough to have O-levels, so I've got nine O-levels. They're not the highest qualification I have, but I still remember the bits of even those, and that's uh, sort of 40 years ago or something, or not quite that. I also haven't forgotten how to ride a bike. They say you never forget uh, these things. So what's all this stuff about everyone forgetting everybody? Where's it come from? Well, I guess the first thing is, how did you learn how to ride a bike? Um, very badly and fell off several times. But it probably wasn't through some type of formal learning or course. And no, it wasn't. It was probably by a friend of mine who insisted on uh, taking me out to, to save me from my father having to do it.
1: <laughs> and that's
0: exactly the thing. So if you look at how the majority of us actually learned to do our jobs and to be
1: effective inside them, it didn't come from the way that learning and development traditionally in corporate learning has been investing heavily inside. So most people learn how to do their stuff in their job because they are learning it from their peers. They're asking people next to them. So, so I guess, in essence, if we shift our investment towards the, the whole 100% of how people learn, so both the, how we learn the workplace, how we learn socially, through friends, peers, mentors, and obviously, you know, making the formal part as good as we can, then we're going to find that actually the impact of that is is far greater. Yeah, I was going to say the GCSE stuff and the A-level stuff still happens, doesn't it? You know, the classroom learning. Yeah, and, and I think at the same point, right? So a lot of that is about how do you stuff knowledge in someone's head to be able to then bring it out at a specific moment in time. And the shame is a lot of that same model is used in corporate learning. So, But that's not really what the CEO wants. If you said to the chief exec, you know, it's different what your parent wants, right? Your parents want you to get an A-grade. That sounds like we both disappointed our parents on that. <laughs> Whereas a CEO doesn't really care about that. What they want is you performing and the individuals performing at the highest level to do their job. And therefore, what we've done is we made an assumption is the same techniques that got us the A grade are the right techniques to
0: drive performance across different roles and organization, which obviously isn't true. I also do a lot of face-to-face coaching, both as a mentor myself, where people need uh, media coaching, presentation coaching, and a mentee in terms of uh, building my own business. Up. I have two business coaches helping me along. and I tend not to forget what they tell me. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> well, so, I don't see so, the fit.
1: Well, no, but I think say so. that's a great example, again. If we say, what's the different things you need to become, to be great at that, to perform highly as in whatever area as a, pres- as a presenter, there are some parts of understanding. So one of the colleagues in here, he, he wants to change... Uh, some of his behavior towards being more confident, so that you know he he can live life with less regrets or more regrets, but live life with uh, with no regrets. And to do that, he's he's read a book, he's watching videos, and understand the concept of that. And goes, well, I want to be that person. But then then what he's doing is he's actually going and creating new mental muscles by going out there and actually doing activities that help change that. So he's going into he's purposely going to places to get rejected. So he goes to the Starbucks recently to get a free cup of coffee which he actually managed to get Uh, uh, when he's he's actually, then he's gone to other places to ask for money to get a ticket where he's been rejected from. But what's happening is he's creating new mental muscles in those activities, which is now making them not care so much about rejection elsewhere and go for things. So there's one part that's saying, I've got the understanding. The second part that's saying, what's the activities and the tasks that I should be doing living, you know, uh, in my job, in my workplace and so forth to become that high performer. And then how does L and D learning and learning technologies create and help me with that path that allows that end thing to happen, which isn't just understanding or even having the capability that I'm afraid to use, but I'm living and I've got those new habits.
0: Right. So in this particular person's case, it's a fear of rejection and he's training himself to uh, experientially. Rejection is not such a bad thing because what's the worst thing that can happen? Someone can say no or whatever he's going through
1: and and the activities are rewiring his brain hmm. right so there's one thing that says yeah i get that but my brain is still going to live the same path i've always lived because when i get a choice my neurons go left rather than go right so what he's doing in his activities subliminally is actually recoding his brain to be able to be more open to being rejected and therefore to take on things that he normally wouldn't have gone for
0: so you can actually do things subliminally you think uh, even though you're conscious of them because that's not my understanding of subliminally well
1: i think he's not conscious of what's happening in his brain Mm -hmm. you know he, he obviously his belief is that going he doesn't know why the process of going through rejection is helping him so but but now chatting to him last night and saying to him and asking him the question of how does he now how do you now feel and how do you feel about this process he goes well actually i'm feeling that i don't care so much about rejection I'm having coaching conversations with them. that is to live life with no regrets as the coaching part towards it, which is allowing him to think differently. So the combination of doing activities, doing tasks, and, and that's how we're really thinking about learning going forward. How do we both codify what best practice looks like so people can refer to that, understand that? How do we create tasks that allow them to then, that are the right tasks that we believe that's now going to allow them to create that change within themselves that we think that change is going to be the high-performing change. And then how do we use data on mass as we look at multitudes and thousands of people doing this to see when's it working, when's it not working? So what do we do less on? What do we do more? Because the data has given us that
0: information. Let's take a step back and say, uh, you mentioned the things that are being done in the workplace at the moment are less successful. What typically people find in a workplace learning scenario and why are things set that way if it's not working? Well, I think to the First point, I think, again, <laughs> because we've got those parts in our brain to do things that like we've always
1: done. So we're taking a model of, of learning from the classroom in our school system and, and university system and higher education system. And it's being applied. It's not the same system in the military. The military doesn't learn exactly the same way. Right. There's lots more practice application and so forth to, toward doing it. So in the, in the corporate workplace, it, it's still mainly we go on these courses we hope that people are going to retain the information and we hope they're going to become, they're going to use the change process themselves towards getting there. So the impact of the investment is minimal versus what it could be. If you look at more evolved clients and so some of our, you know, our, our best clients, they're now, for example, they reduced what they would teach formally to maybe 10 to 30 percent of what they would do. And 60 to 90 percent of every program is designed for that knowledge to be search a point of need. Because that's the expectation, right? And if we can close the gap between learning that thing and applying it, then actually it's much more impactful towards that. Likewise, how, how, when they design programs, do they bring up all of that great knowledge and experience within the organization in the same way we use YouTube and so forth? So how does that come up? How does that circulate? And how does that get to the right people?
0: I'm glad you mentioned YouTube because I keep seeing things about video, bits and pieces of research about video. That says it's much more more engaging, but I'm not convinced myself that it's any better than any other form of desktop learning, depending on what you are actually trying to pick up on. I've seen figures that say that uh, LinkedIn improves dramatically your engagement if you happen to have video on it. but I've also seen research that says if you scroll past something and a video starts, it counts as a hit, so I'm not sure how real those things are. Um, is video undersold? Is video part of the mix? How do you feel about that? Well, I think, first of all, is video is a medium, right, which can be used well or, or
1: in a really bad fashion. So a talking head video done with a selfie camera towards it where someone there is... Uh, monotone, boring, not to the point, not concise, and so forth, is going to be really
0: ineffective. That's a great thing to say to a podcaster. <laughs> it's filled me with confidence. Thanks so much. I'm <laughs> halfway through. I'm not stopping and again. That's fine. Uh, um, but at the same point, if you look at what we did for the
1: education, actually what we did for the children's education, uh, we have a charity which actually kickstart a lot of the ideas behind Fuse. So we've actually digitised 800 videos, which mapped the entire uh, full-course subjects of the secondary school education system. So what we did there is we went and found the best teachers we could, we then extracted out the best digital explanation of each concept, atoms, or, um, immunity system, and so forth. We then spent an hour post-producing that to cut out the ums and the ahs and, and so forth, and then put a visual layer on top of that to understand. that We now have a million to two million kids every month accessing in every country across the world. The general feedback of, this, of that content is, I now understand in three minutes what my treats are trying to explain for the last hour. So that's an example of it used really well. And obviously, the stats would show to us, and YouTube is different to LinkedIn. So when you watch a video on, on YouTube, it, you have to watch it, click it, yes. and it tells you what percentage. LinkedIn does a different thing and different calculations around um, what they call an impression versus the click versus the view. So it's a little
0: bit more, um, more messy to understand what the categories mean. Yeah. And I get that, uh, for example, Google is easier to use than a reference book. Trust me, when I was repairing my dishwasher a few weeks ago, without that YouTube video, I would not have known where to start, except get on the phone and find a plumber who would have been very expensive to remove one small piece of plastic or whatever it was. Are we just generally concluding that it's everything in, in its place? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think look, there's no
1: video by itself isn't itself silver bullet, but it's undoubtedly a critical component of, of the the, the armory to provide, to provide the, the solution you need. I mean, the great thing about video is a, it's so easy to create. You know, we pick up a phone, we can shoot how to make, how to assemble a car, a car whatever happens to be, and that becomes an asset that people can use, right? So, it's um, in our platform, for example, when you create a video, it not only uploads the video, it transcribes the audio to text, it allows you to automatically translate that to subtitles around the world, it understands the concept of video, that it tags it, and then those those tags and the popularity of that content then recommend it to the right people. But the person creating it might spend five minutes creating the content inside that. So it's a very malleable tool, but obviously it still can be a terribly bad tool. If you, if, I mean, I've heard clients who said, you know, people don't use, um, aren't watching my content, therefore it's something with the platform. And so it it might not just be that, right. And you know, it might be open to the fact that we couldn't help you be more interesting, more engaging, more concise and therefore, you know, there are rules, right? We know if, if even I created a piece of content internally with my own company, my own people, right, that, you know, that we uh, joining the cause and joining the movement. If I make it 10 minutes long, I'll, I'll get half the people at least to watch that than if I try and make the effort to make that three minutes long.
0: Yeah, it's the old thing about uh, was it George Bernard Shaw who once wrote somebody that uh, he uh, apologized for the long letter, but he didn't have time to write a short one. Yeah, I, lo- I, lo- I love that quote. I, I think, uh, I mean, I think
1: that quote has been used by by a lot of different people. So it's I will claim buy. credit for it. Then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, but I think yeah to get to the component of being
0: irresistibly concise is definitely you know a, a new skill of the learning function. Tell me a bit about what, what you actually do, because we've hedged around it quite a lot, and I, I know I don't have a question like this in my script, but um, what exactly is uh, Fuse Universal? How, how does it work?
1: So, so in essence, we help our, our clients across the world to modernise how they think about learning. So how do they move from the world where it's very core-centric, the impact is limited and hard to articulate in terms of value, and we provide both the technology to allow the new world to happen. So our technology is the enabler. And it's an important piece towards it, but it's also not the silver bullet. You can give someone the, the greatest technology in the world, and it's still if they, if they go with the old mindset, they're still not going to move forward. So technology is, is, a, is a big piece, and that's where we make our revenue from. And our platform initially 10 years ago, when I, I dreamt it up, was initially kind of an internal version of a YouTube plus LinkedIn. So how do we allow that content to come up in the organization and, and down and sideways? Uh, but also how do we bring social back into that conversation? Over the years, we had some of the more formal layers towards it, the data part towards it, the tracking parts in, in, in there. But in essence, if you really look at the core value we're providing to, to a global organisation, it's recognising that they have some of the greatest, well, they have the, the most important knowledge that people need in the organisation. It's like the old HP adage, which um, if only HP knew what HP knew. That's really what we're, what we're solving, right? We're allowing organisations to know what they know at the speed they know it
0: right've uh, uh, you mentioned organizations i know you've got a few quite high profile clients this isn't uh, it's, it's not a trivial uh you know several one-man bands uh use your platform do you got any names you can share yeah, I, yeah so people like um from dropbox in, in the states to spotify in sweden globally
1: to brands like vodafone uh, merck globally um so there's lots of organizations from a thousand people to a hundred thousand people our biggest user base with one client is Avon's external user base which is five million entrepreneurs but also the internal team use it for their sixteen thousand internal staff
0: across the world as well
1: right i mean those are serious
0: numbers but I, I still find an awful lot of companies actually coming to me and coming to other traders for, for traditional face-to-face learning i'm just wondering whether this is a generational thing or because it may not be the youngest of people i'm uh, i'm training all the time yeah well i think i think again i think that the world's the world's moving at the same point there is loads of people now
1: choosing to go and find content online and buy content online themselves and the two worlds are are, need to live with each other. So again, if we looked at our client base, the most successful programs are client learning is when they're utilising the best of people and the best of technology. So I don't think either one is, is the right answer in solo amongst itself. And what we're finding now is that the really the really progressive organizations are recognising their trainings but are recognising that their classroom is no longer four walls. It's also the internet. Mm -hmm. So how do they continue the conversations, the growth of that cohort of people they're training, Mm -hmm. not just for the time they're with them, but the time
0: throughout the years, the months and years to come. My last question was about um, how people learn best. I'm guessing that the answer is going to be no silver bullet. Are we talking future apps? Are we talking about YouTube videos? Are we talking about finding what mix works for you as a learner?
1: Well, I think we all, you know, we all learn slightly differently, and and I think again that's where the flexibility of technology is important. You can kind of group and say, look, generally speaking, most of us end up in roles where people are like us. So project managers, uh, so project managers are probably. Of a similar different profile to salespeople. So there is some 80 20 groupings between roles inside there, but you would say that each of those groups prefer probably to receive content in different ways, and data is kind of showing that. So, you know, video for salespeople were short, concise, and visual. Tend to be more successful when we look at that data as a generalization versus researchers that maybe prefer text and, and different places. But also when you're home, you, know, you might prefer it in a different way than when you're traveling in other places. So there isn't a silver bullet of one type. I think we're still going through the learning of fine-tuning that. I think a lot of it is around personalization. You can fast-track personalization through personality profiling and, and through seeing people's choices. So the real degree, I, I, the real heart and hub of it, I think, is flexibility flexibility in the technology to allow the technology to serve the individual in the way they want to learn.
0: Okay. And finally, uh, when can people find out more about you and your organization?
1: Uh, so yeah, Fuse Universal. So www.fuseuniversal.com tells you about what we do, has some great client case studies. If anyone has any direct questions, feel free to LinkedIn me. So Steve Denine on LinkedIn, always happy to make a connection and have a conversation about a topic I love.
0: Steve Denine with Fuse Universal, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clabberton. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk. And I'll be back in two weeks' time.